0: Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver S.O.S. On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. You find her at the WellMed Charitable Foundation, where she's the executive director. Also, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and a very well-known and well-respected expert on aging and seniors and issues involving seniors. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to be here. Well, we've been talking about... Uh, Uh, The hairless mole rats for a long time. We found another little creature for you.
1: I know. And you sent me the article. I had already read it in the New York Times. Um, We're not going to talk about naked mole rats. No. We're going to talk about Gambian pouched rats.
0: Who are huge.
1: (laughs) Who are huge. Okay. So this has nothing to do with caregiving, but it's fascinating. So hang with us. So a Gambian (laughs) pouched rat is almost three feet long from its nose to the end of its tail. So it's like a size of a cat or big enough to scare a cat. Exactly. Um, But they're really, really smart. And uh, there was an article by a gentleman whose uh, children had had bought him a, a hero rat, which is this Gambian pouch rat. This rat is saving humans from mines and minefields.
0: Because?
1: Because it can smell them. They have trained these rats to go through these horrible minefields left over from past wars. And um, I'm thinking, you know, there have been various celebrities uh, through the years. Well, uh, Princess know, Diana was Princess one. Princess Diana was one that was really concerned about the, the minefields because they're, they lay, they're very close to villages and, and, and small towns, and children get in them and people get in them, and they... Get blown up and lose limbs and get killed, and it's really horrible because the war's over, but the mines are still there.
0: And it turns out these little creatures can be trained to spot them and identify them, and they're not heavy enough to set off the mine.
1: No, they're only well. I mean, if I saw a two and a half pound rat, I
0: would like <laughs> run
1: for the hills. Yeah. Um, but they don't set they don't set them off. And go so picture a guy in all this body armor and a metal detector gingerly walking along. A trying, rat on a leash. Yeah, trying to find some sort of metal um and everything metal sets off right. his alarm. Okay, and then now picture a little rat running through the field on a leash that he doesn't it doesn't care how much metal's in there. It doesn't ever get, you know, turned, its nose doesn't go towards anything but the mines. So it's only identifying mines. It's twenty times faster than wow. a human That's in fabulous. locating mines.
0: By the way, while we're Moving along, I want to remind you that coming out in just a moment, we're going to be talking with Richard Eisenberg, who is with PBS, with NextAvenue.org. He is a financial guru and genius, started his career at Money Magazine, and has ended up now writing about... Uh, issues involving caregiving and retirement.
1: Right, and we don't do enough about money issues, you know, probably on the show. And, and Richard is just a font of information. And he probably knows about these giant rats. Which he does. I have, I have to go back to because the other thing that they're training the rats to do is to identify people with tuberculosis um, in these uh, impoverished countries. And, you know, tuberculosis kills 1.5 million people a year. Wow. And to get tested positive for tuberculosis is like 20 different tests. It takes a really long time. Guess what? The rat can do it with just, they can screen 100 samples in 20 minutes.
0: And they just sniff it.
1: And they just sniff it. They go, I'll line up all little Petri dishes. They're like, yep, this one, yep, that one. They are more accurate than a human with a microscope. Wow. So these are hero rats, not just scary rats, hero rats. Um, And if you're interested, my husband is going to be giving me a hero rat for Mother's Day. And, and, you know, this is a caregiver show. We all have mothers. Maybe you would like to honor her. Maybe she has everything. Maybe she doesn't, you know, maybe she's well cared for. And you need to pass that good work on to someone else. So if you go to either, I don't know how to say this. Well, it, let me
0: explain so people okay, don't think, think you're going to have a have little rat delivered at home. to you. No, if they're going to buy like, the
1: rat and it's going to be go to these other countries. Right.
0: You give money every month to help. Right. cover it's the like, rat's training. But
1: for eighty four dollars, you get a rat. You can, you know, they can train a rat. It lives to be eight years old. Little, it yeah, only takes nine time. months to train them. So it has years of, of very good use, and then they get to retire. They do not destroy these very heroic <laughs> rats. Um, so globalgiving.org or apopo apopo apopo. Um, if know. you go there, the, they also train rats. And I just thought it was it's great. It's a great way that we're using. Um, animals to better our world, and so what if they're rats? We make fun of rats all the time they 're doing all this scientific work for us, and now they 're saving us from landmines
0: now, speaking of saving things as we live longer and longer, and we talk with uh, uh, we 'll be talking with Richard Eisenberg about this in just a few minutes uh, we 're living longer, and some of them aren't living their money well, age and finance a big issue
1: it 's a big issue, and the other issue is that they're also there are problems our money handling skills seem to decline a lot of times when we get older. If you think about that half of the people over the age of 80 have some sort of mild cognitive impairment, you know, they may have full blown Alzheimer's, but they have some cognitive problems. And one of the first problems where well, you may not think there really anything is going on, but you may notice, yeah, they're slow, somebody's slow paying their bills, um, you know, Calculating that tip, easy mathematical calculation. Say I, who just used my phone calculator yesterday to calculate a tip, um, get harder. Harder. More, and more and harder. restaurants
0: are putting that on. The, I know on they're the even putting on now. the bill
1: because we can't do it. Uh, but the, this was a story in the New York Times saying that financial skills are often the first to go. Wow! And what that means is that our older family members are vulnerable, vulnerable to um, some sort of abuse. Uh, somebody calling on the phone saying, invest in this, Uh, another relative asking for money. Um, And I thought they made a really good suggestion. If if you're an older person or you have an older loved one, getting a group of people to help them be their financial advisors, one person, even if it's a professional, can run off with the whole load of money, do really bad advice or do really horrible things. But if you have two or three people Mm -hmm. that kind of get together and discuss finances and prop that person's finances up, much less likely to have a situation where someone's going to be abused.
0: My dad, years and years ago, uh, he was the poor one in a very wealthy family. He was a pharmacist. Everyone else uh, were doctors doing very well. He proposed for his family a happiness club where everybody just puts their income into a big pot and you just draw out what you need.
1: And, just, and, and did they do that and did Only it Only one
0: vote for it.
1: <laughs> Let me guess who's <laughs> yeah, that was. my dad. Well, you know, the other piece of advice, and, and maybe we can talk to Richard about this, was that when you know when we turn retire when we start to retire we get sixty five we need to start simplifying our financial lives you know a lot of us have money in twenty five different places so maybe get it in several very reputable uh, safe places good investment tools that meet our needs instead of having it everywhere right and just simplify that and it makes it easier for us to track and easier for our family members I to worked track work with as a well. woman
0: whose husband passed away very wealthy guy. Uh, she was the executor, and it wasn't until he died that she started getting his bank letters and mailers and receipts. He had banks all over the country. She had no idea.
1: I, I can no remem- idea. I can remember years ago when my grandfather died, it was the same thing. Every time my mother thought that she had nailed down the last bank account, last piece of information, we'd find a slip of paper in a shoebox right. or in a receipt in a drawer that would give us, you know, it's, oh my gosh, there's, there's something else out there. There's money sitting around in another account. or.
0: But that goes to sitting down as a family and talking about those issues before you reach the point where it's too late to be able to talk about it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm thinking about do I know everywhere even our own family money is and maybe I don't. So all of us need to have that conversation.
0: Ernest has those overseas accounts you that's never told those, you about. Yeah,
1: those those big Swiss bank <laughs> accounts I would <laughs> yeah, love to know exactly. about.
0: So let's take a look at now the changing face of caregiving.
1: Well, Richard Eisenberg, our guest, who's and coming I've in met, just a few minutes, met at the Aging in America conference and also on Next Avenue, one of his fellow writers, uh, Emily, I hope I say this right, Gurnon, G U R N O N. She's a, another senior editor, and she wrote about. That we're not taking care of our family caregivers. She went to a session with Lynn Fris Feinberg, who's with AARP. And Lynn um, is actually right now the current uh, chair of AARP, I'm sorry, chair of American Society on Aging. And she used to work in these caregiver centers in California. Again, someone who knows a lot about caregiving. And she's just talking about how caregiving is changing. um, And. You know, one thing is we used to talk about informal caregivers, meaning family members. Right. And she's saying that that's really does not do justice to the task. It's demeaning. And and informal means something that's kind of casual and relaxed. And if you talk to anyone caring for someone with Alzheimer's, they are, they're not casual. They're certainly not relaxed. I can remember one caregiver telling us, you know, they keep calling me an informal caregiver. I do this 24-7. I change diapers. I prepare food. I run errands. I do this. I do that. She goes, there is nothing. If, if this isn't formal, then I don't know what is. And she was just angry at being classified as informal good caregiver. Good point. So, you know, she makes a good point on that. Um, you know, this, this idea of we don't have enough family caregivers Uh, Lynn talks about how now she lives in Maryland. Her grandkids are in California. Uh, All of us, our families are are way far apart. Our families are smaller. We're not going to have enough family caregivers, so I think that has to change. Um, And then we really don't have any kind of support for family caregivers, so we need policy changes. You know, we talk to Richard. Richard writes all the time about how difficult it is financially being a caregiver And if we don't, you know, kind of help support families taking care of their loved ones, they're not going to be able to, and they the caregiver suffers in the long term when they give up all of their income.
0: It should be an easy sell with Congress because they're all old. They all know this issue, but they, most of them have enough money that caregiving is not a challenge money-wise.
1: Well, that's it. And, you know, we've ta- We've interviewed folks over the years that we've been doing this show that it's, you know, well they just buy the care that they need and, right. and not everyone has the no. luxury of being able to do that.
0: The vast majority can't do that. No, no. Just have a few minutes left. Uh, in fact, about a minute and a half, so that's not a few minutes. Uh, you've got a list of the top ten worst states to retire in what are the right. top 5
1: All right so if you're thinking of retiring anytime soon I will tell you on the the 10th on the list is Texas Ooh. because we've got seniors that live in poverty and not a lot of services but the top 5 places are okay. So you don't want to live in? Um, I'm sorry, New York. It's way too expensive. Ooh, big surprise. You don't want to live in New Mexico because the crime is so high. Really? Yeah, I was really sad to see that because I've actually thought about New Mexico. Got that sheriff
0: Arpeo out there arresting everybody.
1: Yeah, you don't want to live in Minnesota which has great long-term care. It's always high on the list of long-term care because they tax you on your Social Security and your retirement income. Wow. So that's kind of discouraging. California, again, way too expensive and top of the list. Don't retire in Washington, D.C. You'll be surrounded by politicians, and you won't be able to afford to live anywhere.
0: That's a 10-4 on that, little buddy. Thank you. In just a moment, we talk with Richard Eisenberg from... uh, NextAvenue.org, uh PBS spinoff. And I, uh, he uses the term in, in the stuff I've read. He calls their separate websites channels. I like that. Well, they come from PBS.
1: They do. So and that makes sense. And you're going to want to know about all those channels. Rich and Eisberg coming
0: up next. Right here on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eickhoff, that's not by accident.
2: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home.
0: And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah,
2: I, I really do try to and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just Their diseases.
0: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well.
2: We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures.
0: Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210 614 Well. 210 614 Well. Well, we're so pleased you're sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. And as we promised, we deliver. Richard Eisenberg joins us, the assistant managing editor at PBS's Next Avenue. And it's a site for people, nextavenue.org, people in their 50s and 60s who are concerned about, interested in money. Richard's also editor of the site's Money and Security and Work and Purpose channels. So he is one busy money-related Fellow. And we thank you for coming on with us.
3: Thank you, Ron. Nice to be here.
0: And Carol mentioned that she had run into you at that convention in Chicago not too long ago.
3: That's right. It's great to see you. Talk to you again, Carol.
1: Yeah, it's nice to have you. You know, I am such a huge fan of Next Avenue. Um, Anybody who really wants to read something that has a little bit of everything, whether it's money, whether it's health, whether it's leisure. Um, I get a lot of information from Next Avenue. It's a great resource, and I always read your columns, Richard.
3: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, and we're especially proud of another one of the channels on our site is is, is called Caregiving. It's all about caregiving, and it's about uh, partly the finances, but a lot of it is just about how to be a caregiver, how to provide care, resources, that kind of thing. So I think people who are doing caregiving or are going to might find it very useful to come to nextavenue.org and take a look at the Caregiving Channel.
1: That's right. And the hardest thing about the, the website is you'll just keep going. You'll read one article and you'll something else will catch your eye and you can spend quite a bit of time.
0: you get on the rabbit warren just clicking yeah, link just after click, link. I know.
1: I do that. And pretty soon I realize that I've been doing this for over an hour and just reading and reading. So. And it's
0: four in the morning.
1: Yeah, it, well, it, it can be <laughs> exactly. sometimes, you know.
0: So, Richard, you mentioned caregiving. Let's start with caregiving because uh, we're living in a day and age where where we are indeed an aging society. Uh, and lots of folks who may not have planned ahead, who may not have put the money that they should have put into uh, extended care, who probably didn't do a whole lot uh, to take care of finances that they're going to need, uh, are suddenly faced with the challenge of being caregivers. And, and you've certainly written about that, uh, involved in a survey uh, involving Alzheimer's in caregiving. What should caregivers think about, and is it too late if you have nothing saved?
3: Uh, well, it isn't too late, but the, the, the thing you want to do uh, is not just throw up your hands and panic and say, I can't do this or I can't afford to do this. You just need to do the best you can with where you are and take steps to you know make things better for yourself and for your loved ones. And, uh, you know, a lot of people um, we found uh, in our articles, um, have never had a conversation with their spouses or loved ones about long-term care and the possibility of that and where it might happen and how, it, who's going to pay for it. So I would say, you know, if you haven't done this yet, um, you really want to have a conversation with your loved ones, and those could be your parents, could be your kids, your sister, your brother, and really discuss sort of, you know, how might this happen, where might somebody be living, how is it going to get paid for.
1: So do you find that when you're talking to people that there is a lot of confusion about who pays for long-term care? In in other words, it's not Medicare that pays for long-term care?
3: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we've seen study after study that shows that most people just assume that, oh, Medicare will pay for it, or for some reason uh, that doesn't happen, well, then, you know, if we we need it, Medicaid will kick in. And uh, as you know very well, Um, that's very unlikely for most people. Medicare uh, pays very little when it comes to long-term care, and most people are are not eligible for Medicaid. So it really falls to most of us to come up with the money ourselves to pay for long-term care, and that could be through our own savings. It could be through buying a long-term care insurance policy or one of those new hybrid policies or some combination of the two.
0: In fact, your survey shows that, on average, families are spending about four thousand a month or more in caring for an Alzheimer's patient.
3: Yeah, that, that was a really stunning number when we saw that number. That's a lot stunning. of money. Uh, it absolutely is, and uh, sadly, it's a figure that's only going to be going up for people in the future because uh, these costs are not going down. If anything, they're going up. there's a study that just came out recently from Genworth, where they every year they look to see what is the cost for a nursing home, assisted living, home care. And what they're finding is that these costs are rising far, and, far higher than the inflation rate, by and large. A nursing home, a private room in a nursing home now costs, uh, on average, $91,000 a year, and that's up 4% from a year ago. So, you know, we've heard about health care costs moderating lately, and that's great news, but that does not seem to be having very much in the long-term care area.
1: Right. I have a, a relative who lives in a nursing home. And we're talking two beds, curtain in between, built in the 1960s. Um, and he's paying 80000 something a year for the privilege of a mirror, a twin-side bed, and a curtain in half of a room.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's incredibly expensive. And assisted living uh, is, is no bargain either. It's you know very important for a lot of people to, to be able to live there, but the cost is very high. It's uh, $43,200 a year is the median, according to Genworth.
0: And is there, if you don't have long-term care insurance, and if you're already in your 60s, it's a little late to try to get it, is there insurance that covers assisted living?
3: Um, not specifically. I mean, you you might be able to qualify for a uh, long-term care insurance policy, which might cover some costs in assisted living. Uh, but by and large, you know what you'll probably need, be needing to do is um, – use the savings that you have or or do more savings between now and, and the future to uh, to pay for these costs. Um, now, you know, there's always a possibility, I suppose, that uh, somewhere down the line, the government might step in and realize that there's a, a national problem, because there is, but uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, and the people that we've talked to at Next Avenue also don't feel uh, it's very likely to happen. Uh, we we talked with a, a gentleman named Bruce Turnoff, who ran the... Federal Long-Term Care Commission, and he talks about what he calls the big middle, which is most of us, which is to say the very wealthy people have enough savings that they can pay for long-term care if they need it, and the very poor are most likely to be able to qualify for Medicaid, but it's everybody in the middle who really is on their own, and they're the ones who are really facing tough times financially to do this.
1: Right, because with Medicaid, a lot of people don't realize there's that five-year look-back period where if you've transferred any assets, there are many things that will disqualify you For up to five years, and if you are counting on Medicaid and that spend down, uh, you may have done something inadvertently that will prevent you from accessing it.
0: Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zorniel. We're talking with Richard Eisenberg, who is very much involved in the kind of finance issues we are talking about here today. Uh, He's associated with PBS and a really super website. If you haven't been there Nextavenue.org. it's a place you want to make your next stop, and you'll find out all kinds of information and, and resources that may help you uh, with the financial side. Uh, so, Richard, you mentioned long-term care uh, insurance, uh, which most people don't have.
3: That's right. Only about 8% of the country owns a long-term care insurance policy.
0: Well, you
1: mentioned uh, something. You said a hybrid policy. Yeah. What, what is that?
3: Well, what's been happening is, um, uh, you know, and your your listeners may know that uh, in the past few years, more and more uh, insurance companies that were offering long-term care have stopped selling it because they were finding it wasn't profitable. But those who are still selling it are now starting to offer what's called a hybrid policy, which is a combination of a life insurance policy and a long-term care policy. And so what they're finding is there's some people who say, well, I don't really want to buy a long-term care policy. That seems too expensive. But I do need life insurance, so they'll buy a life insurance policy that will have, as part of it, um, benefits that get paid for some long-term care costs. So that may be one way that some people will be able to afford getting some long-term care coverage if they don't buy a policy.
0: So they direct a portion of your premiums uh, into that kind of care?
3: That's right. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, when I went to this uh, press conference that Denworth had recently about uh, long-term care, you know, I said to the, the the gentleman who runs the company, I said, "Well, how are people supposed to not only afford long-term care insurance, but even believe that those companies are going to continue to be there in the future, since so many have dropped out and they've been raising their their premiums often 10, 20, 30 percent a year." And what he said to me was, um, "You know, there's no way to guarantee the future, but would, but what people ought to be doing if they want to buy a long-term care policy is don't necessarily buy what people had done in the past, which was a a policy with a 5% inflation rider, which, you know, sounds great. It means that, that uh, it will rise, uh, the benefits will rise by 5% every year, you know, as an inflation protection, but you have to pay for that, and so that gets very expensive. So instead, I would say if you're going to be looking for a policy, rather than a 5% inflation rider, you might get a 2 or 3% inflation rider, which is what inflation is like these days anyway.
1: Well, and a lot of times the long-term care policies really – are a subsidy anyway they're paying a portion of the long-term care there's not really a policy that's going to it would be incredibly expensive if it paid for everything
3: that's right um... The, the other the sad thing i guess about long-term care policies is and i wrote about this on, on next avenue recently is sometimes people have a very hard time getting the insurance companies to actually pay the benefits that are supposed to get paid and there are some lawyers who do nothing but represent people all day long to try to get the benefits paid by the insurance company because the some insurer companies, some companies, you know, want to do whatever they can to avoid making those payments.
1: Well, and and I've heard that before. Um, that's always a concern. Why is it that the company? I mean, is it they just don't want to turn loose of the money? Why is it so difficult for them to honor a policy that somebody's paid the premiums on for years?
3: Well, um, you know, I don't want to cast on the insurance industry entirely, but there are going to be some cases where the companies, just as we find often with health insurance too, where the companies are looking for ways to deny the claims so that they are not going to have to pay the money out of their own you know, coffers. Um, so what it really means for the, for the customer is they need to be their own advocate or get some help to help them out to fight back. You know, it's not a guarantee that they'll get the benefits paid, but in many cases, people who find... The first answer is no, often get the answer of yes if they push back hard enough.
1: That's right. That's right. And I would say for anybody who experiences that, if they'll contact their local area agency on aging, it doesn't matter where you live in the country, uh, most area agencies on aging know of some organization that will help fight for benefits that you are entitled to whether it's public benefits or private
0: benefits. And there's a great website you can go to to get some of that information. Yeah,
1: if you'll go to elder gov, eldercare.gov. That's eldercare.gov, and you can it'll take you immediately to the area agency on aging in your area.
0: Now, Richard Eisenberg, stand by. You're going to disappear into the Maxwell Smart Cone of Silence for a couple of moments, and we'll get back to you, do a little news update at our end. And when we get back, I'm curious. Uh, you write a bit about how Americans who are 50 and over are living longer than... Than ever expected, and we need a new definition about young adulthood and old, old adulthood. What does that mean? I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerdale. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. thank you for joining us here on caregiver SOS on air. You want to hear podcasts of these programs. You want to tell somebody that down the road Richard Eisenberg was a guest and you can catch him on our podcast? Yes, you can do that. Just go to caregiversos.org and you will find podcasts for all of our shows. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Richard Eisenberg is with us. He's with an organization that's a PBS spinoff called nextavenue.org. And, uh, Richard, Carol often says on the air that when she goes to a cocktail party and people say, what do you do? And she says, well, I'm a gerontologist. It, It turns the conversation off immediately. The two of you, however, could talk forever. I think that's true.
1: <laughs> so I said, "I said, oh my gosh, there, are, there, are, there's more than one person in the United States that would go to a press conference about retirement and long-term care,
0: and that would be Richard."
3: Well, today it is, but I have a feeling that in the future there are going to be a lot more people who are a lot more interested in the whole area of aging and gerontology because there are going to be so many more of us who are going to be of that age.
1: I know. I went to my college reunion, and I said, you may think I'm boring now, but in 10 years you're going to want to know me. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) That's right. Now, you you write that those of us, and I happen to be 72 Mm-hmm. Almost seventy-three. Those of us over the age of fifty are expected to live longer than any previous generation. Why does that matter, and what does that mean?
3: Well, it matters because it means we need to ha- make our money last longer than maybe our parents and grandparents' generations needed to, because we're going to be around longer. And so, you know, there there are good and not so good things about that. The good news is that you're going to be around to have more life experiences and see your kids grow up and your grandchildren and things like that. You know, the bad part of it is that it's expensive. And, and as people get older, they have new health costs. They could be regular health costs. They could be long-term care costs. And it means that for all of us, we need to be doing a better job of saving money for the future because there's just maybe more future for us.
0: And you talk about a new life stage that lies between young adulthood and old, old adulthood.
3: Yeah, you know, people talk about what's called the longevity bonus, which are these extra years that we're now getting because we're all living longer. And the question is sort of what are you going to do with that bonus? And, you know, most people don't want to think of using those extra years and putting them at the end of their life. They want to put them more in the middle of the life so they can take advantage of those years. So I would say, you know, when you're in your 60s and your 70s and and if you're healthy enough to be able to, you really want to take advantage of those years um, and, you know, and have some experiences and maybe keep working and, and do things that are going to, uh, you know, that you'll enjoy. And also expect that there's a good chance that if you're in your 60s or 70s now, you may very well live to your 80s or 90s and, uh, you know, look forward to it and, and make some plans.
0: And the caregivers who are listening, Richard, are saying, you mean they're going to live how much longer? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me.
3: No, it's true. Uh, my father is uh, 90, 93 in August, and I see an, uh, an awful lot of people in their 90s these years, uh, these days.
0: Well, do
1: you ever weigh into the Social Security uh, discussion, uh, it's going to be there, it's not going to be there? There's a lot of uh, discussion, probably not in, in people that are in the aging circles, but outside of the aging circles, that don't believe Social Security um, is going to be there for them.
3: Yeah, we certainly hear that a lot, particularly among people in their 20s and 30s. I think they've they've resigned themselves to believe that it will not be there at all. Uh, nobody knows for sure. I think that it will be there in the future, but I'm not sure it will be exactly the way it is today. I think there's a very good chance we're going to see changes, uh, changes in the retirement age, changes in benefits, changes in taxes, uh, in order to keep the system running. And so I think what will ultimately happen is that People will still get Social Security, but they may wait longer to get it, and they may get less of it.
1: Well, are there misconceptions now about Social Security? Do you find people that think, oh, that's that was the retirement income that was supposed to pay for my retirement in its entirety?
3: Yeah, there are some people who assume that Social Security is going to basically cover all their expenses in retirement. I think more and more that people are beginning to realize that, that it's not necessarily the case, although social security is the main source of income for for most people who are retired so i don't want to discount it it is you know very valuable but you know for people who are earning you know 50 70 80,000 100,000 more a year uh, they need to understand that they're not going to be getting anything close to that from social security but getting you know 10 or 20,000 dollars a year from social security can go a long way
1: so do if you're talking to men or women is do you do you give a different speech? Is it is facing retirement different for women than it is for men from a financial standpoint?
3: Uh, it is in a few ways. Uh, you know, women in general tend to live longer than men, so that means they need to make their money last even longer, uh, as a rule, on average, than men do. And women are more likely to uh, live as live single when they're older than men are, and that means they need to be more self-sufficient and not be counting on somebody else's income um, when they're going to be by themselves um, single. So I would say we've done a lot on Next Avenue recently about how women over 50 really need to take control of their money, and a lot of that is about retirement planning uh, because in many cases they're going to be uh, on their own and living quite a long time.
0: Next Avenue is a great name for that uh, website, by the way. uh, Were you part of those who came up with it?
3: Uh, I was not uh, part of the naming of it. I was part of the launch team when we started the site back in two thousand and eleven, uh, but I agree with you. I think it's a great name because it, you know I think there are a lot of us in our fifties sixties, and seventies who are thinking about well what is our next avenue going to be whether that's you know what job am I going to have? Will I have a second career or an encore career? Will I be moving to a different part of the country? will I be Uh, getting more meaning in my life. A lot of people uh, in the SAGE group are really looking for more meaning. What can they be doing to make the world a better place?
0: And tell us a bit about the website uh, pages that you have for caregivers because, as we pointed out, uh, this is a show, Caregiver SOS, on air, aimed at caregivers. We have a website, caregiversos.org. I'd like to know more about yours.
3: Sure. Well, uh, next has has five channels. One of them is the Caregiving Channel, and that's a channel that we update every day with new articles about being a caregiver, and it's about um, how to do it, uh, resources, um, how to, the issues that caregivers face, um, the cost of being a caregiver. And then in addition to that, we have the Money Channel and the Work Channel, which are the two channels that I'm in charge of, and then a channel called Living and Learning uh, and a channel on health. And some of those other channels also have caregiving articles. I often write about um, the, the the money and and work side of caregiving because as a lot of caregivers know all too well when you're a caregiver. Not only is it expensive to to be providing this care often, but it can also really affect your career. There are a lot of people who've had to either give up their jobs or cut back on their hours because they need to spend that time doing caregiving, and you know that's. It's you know a blessing that they're doing that, but it's also very you know difficult sometimes financially and, and sometimes um, psychologically to to have to
0: give up what you do. Well, this is the new cocktail party talk, so let me throw it out at you. We'll link to yours if you'll link to ours. I'd be happy to do
1: that. <laughs> well, you were talking about lost wages and caregiving, and I think a figure that I saw once was uh, caregivers lose about $340,000 over their lifetime in lost wages, lost retirement, um, the cumulative impact of stopping working to be a caregiver.
3: Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely true. I've seen those same figures. Um, And I think we're just going to see that happening more and more as people are going to find that their parents or spouses uh, or maybe sisters and brothers um, need their help, uh, whether it's full-time or part-time, and they're going to need to um, work part-time or, or give up work altogether in order to do that. Um, you know, We all have our stories. And In my case, uh, as I mentioned, my father is 92, and I find that once a week, on average, I'm taking him to one of his many doctors um, because uh, he's got to get there, and I also want to be there to, to hear what the doctor says, and so I have to find a way to get my job done and still take care of him, too.
0: How's he doing?
3: Um, he's doing pretty well, you know. He has uh, some issues. I would say primarily balance mentally. I'd say he's doing very well, but uh, he, uh, you know, he's not uh, completely uh, self-supportive the way he used to be.
0: My mother, who lived into her nineties, I, I used to say, "How you doing, Mom?" She'd say, "Ronnie, everything hurts."
1: Now, <laughs> <laughs> see, my great-grandmother, who was in her nineties, she would wake up every day and say, "Good morning." Any day I wake up, it's a good morning.
0: <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. now as you take a look at caregiving down the road there's been a lot written about how we are running out of the familial relative caregivers
3: that's true the, the numbers show and arp has done a lot of research on, into this that there are going to be fewer people in the future who will be able to be doing the family caregiving than there are now and yet the irony is it'll be coming in exactly the time where there's going to be a greater demand for that so i think that you know, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out, except that I would assume that there'll be more people who will be uh, either full or part-time professional caregivers. Um, they may be home care, they may be uh, adult uh, care centers. So I think that there, that's going to be a growth industry because there's going to be a gap that needs to get filled.
1: It'll be like the nurses that we, you know, nurses' wages have gone up significantly. My mother's a retired nurse, and now nurses get paid very well. That was not always the case, and it may be that. Um, paid caregivers also get paid better. Well, Richard, what you know, when you, what do you have a sense of urgency about? Is there anything that you know compels you to write about it? Is there something that stands out, uh, a message that you really feel is important?
3: Um, well, one of the topics that I've been writing a lot about lately is what what we call uh, at Next Avenue uh, the retirement wild card, which is healthcare costs in retirement, and and I call it that because. Um, These these costs are extraordinarily high. I think Fidelity says that the average couple can expect $220,000 in health care costs, not including long-term care costs. But, of course, none of us know how much these costs are going to be. We don't know how healthy we're going to be, how long we're going to live. So it it causes a lot of people to, again, kind of throw up their hands in, in futility. But I really encourage people not to do that, to instead... Uh, do some estimates based on, on their own um, health now and maybe their family's health into what it might cost to cover their medical bills. They shouldn't expect that Medicare is going to cover everything because it doesn't, um, and they need to you know, have a plan set in place so that they will you know, have the money that's needed to pay the medical bills when they come on.
0: And when you say that, do people really do that? I'm sorry? When you say that, people need to take a look, they need to plan, they yeah. need to... Ahead. Are there people doing that?
3: Uh, some people are, but not very many people are. Um, I would you know, really encourage more people to do this because it's just, you know, th- these are big expenses that are not disappearing. And and I think, you know, people tend to sort of ignore it because they say, well, who knows what the future can hold. But the future can hold big medical bills. So I did an article recently on Next Avenue. It was called Retirement Health Costs planning for the wild card, and I had eight ways for people to do something, to try to take action, to to plan for and pay for these medical bills.
0: We'll have to take a look at that. That's great. We, we want to get you back down the road here, if you don't mind coming back on with this fascinating nice. stuff.
1: That's right. Cause, well, and the retirement um, is actually one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy. The medical bills that you're talking about are one of the biggest yes. causes of bankruptcy. Right.
0: Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And and you have managed to not only stay in the same career for a whole lot of years, but uh, to match it with your aging.
3: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I started at Money Magazine uh, when I got first out of college. And at that point, I was writing a lot about uh, just starting to save. And now, somehow, as I've gotten older, I'm writing more about retirement. But, That's uh, cool. I'm really
0: enjoying it. Richard Eisenberg, thank you. Enjoyed right. having you on nextavenue.org is where you can find him. PBS is where he hangs out. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikoff. That's not by accident.
2: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home.
0: And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients.
2: Yeah, I I really do try to, and and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases.
0: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as
2: well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a
0: WellMed? patient call two one oh six one four well two one oh six one four well well thank you very much for joining us on take ten. We follow each of our regular caregiver sos on air shows with take ten featuring Carol Zernial and dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known therapist who deals with issues from caregiving to addiction and a whole lot more and Carol as you know a gerontologist of wide renown and you've got a great topic the attitude of gratitude
1: attitude of gratitude you know i've been thinking about this recently i will be honest a friend of mine has is taking care of her husband who has cancer and he has been has received a terminal diagnosis which sounds you know which is very unfortunate but she and her husband have been so thankful for the life that they've had. They're saying goodbyes. They're making me feel like I have no problems. You know, I started thinking about all the good things in my life. And it really does change your perspective when you try to look at it about, you know, what what is it I'm thankful for and wake up and look around you. And, and Jamie, you know, it, we also talk about... Making a a list of things you're thankful for when we do stress reduction classes.
4: Oh, without a doubt, Carol. And I think a gratitude list is in sync with every disorder and every problem and every time we get ill for any reason. In fact, uh, gratitude is the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I first heard the term attitude of gratitude. It was an AA meeting on Capitol Hill. Um, literally down in the basement for recovering senators and House of Representatives. It was called the Attitude of Gratitude meeting.
1: And and that sounds kind of counterintuitive. What does alcoholism have to do with gratitude?
4: Well, alcoholism, as well as any mental health challenge, as well as with caregivers when they're feeling overwhelmed, if they take a moment to focus on people and things that you're grateful for in life, other things fall by the wayside. I, I mean, it's so difficult to be you know, angry and grateful at the same time, or it's so difficult to be jealous and grateful at the same time. And also to that point, uh, alcoholism, like mental health challenges, becomes self-engrossing, if you will. We, we kind of become consumed with our own selves. And what gratitude does, it, it really allows us to connect to the outside world. And and that's why I believe the attitude of gratitude is so pervasive far beyond AA.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned senators and congressmen uh, in an AA meeting. It is the great equalizer.
4: It is, Ron. It you, is, may it rich, you may be rich. You may be poor. No, you may be a Republican.
0: You may be a Democrat. It doesn't matter. You're an alcoholic.
4: No, it's a chronic and terminal illness. End of story. And no matter how wealthy you are, it's just like cancer. Um, or no matter how you know broke you are, you can get it. It's it's very very random. Like you said, it's the great equalizer. Um, but, but I also believe that, that this journal, you know, it, it has real legs. Carol, I uh, don't um, you know things that I've gone through lately, and we all are human beings and, and tend to think of ourselves working our brains out like human doings. But for one, I've been actually more concentrating on a, a gratitude list as well, and with um, some some medical challenges I'm working through right now, and. I tell you what, it takes me out of my, my head. It gets me off what I call the pity potty, and it allows you really to feel like alive again. In fact, I, I remember somebody telling me in the alcohol and drug business when I was um, running a treatment center, um, they said we can only be, uh, be said to be alive in those moments when our hearts are, are conscious of our treasures. I think that's what the quote was. And that's what gratitude does. It allows our hearts to be conscious of our treasures.
1: And and we're not talking necessarily about some sort of a, a spiritual or a religious kind of, you know, thank you, God kind of list. I mean, it might be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way.
4: No, no. As a matter of fact, you know, this is what spirituality is all about, um, literally, to me. Um, it, 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 I think it transcends any sort of religion, I'm not accepting or not in religions, either way, like you said, it's a wonderful community that hopefully reminds us to be grateful, but literally coming out of ourselves and and appreciating those treasures within ourselves is its own level of spirituality.
1: So why does it really, why does it relieve stress? Is there something, you know, in our brain, is there something physiological that happens when we stop and slow down and think about what we're thankful for? Is
0: it like running and is it triggering dopamines?
4: I think, you know, Ron, is square on there. It does affect different uh, sections of the brain. And just like running and uh, and the endorphins it creates, I think we, we can shift our minds and, and, and go into the gratitude phase and things will shift inside of us. Listen, there's some incredible studies in Eastern medicine. Many of you know um, Sophie, my wife, is, is studying to be an acupuncturist. And she bought, brought me a book home where they showed particles of water um, from very toxic areas and from very clean areas. And then they showed people's emotions and how it affected uh, the fluids in their body because, you know, we're mostly fluids anyway. And you could truly see an attitude of gratitude felt clean. I mean, you could see under the microscope where all the kind of depressing and angry issues that we go through shows a whole different cell.
1: Well, that's it. And, and so, so stress, unhappiness, uh, a lot of the um, burdens that we car- carry around when we're a caregiver are negatively impacted, we, we have higher levels of chronic illness when we're stressed out, we don't feel good, we're not happy, and it can become a very vicious cycle where we're just caught in this stress and caregiving and anger and frustration and hopelessness. And I mean, you can really get wound up around that kind of a negative cycle and we have to do something
4: you that stops that. You get out of that, though. That, this, this, the, gratitude is the beautiful doorway out of that, that self-engrossing piece. You know, I, I used to see patients and who I felt were never grateful. And, and, and I always asked them to do a gratitude list if they could and go home. And they go, I don't have anything grateful to be about. You know, my life is hell. I'm overwhelmed. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. And I go, well, maybe you're right. But let's try something out. And they said, what? I said, well, I'm really sorry about, I heard about your daughter. Your daughter was in an accident, I heard, and and got very injured. And they they said, no, my daughter never got injured in any accident. I go, oh, really? I said, well, I'm sorry about your husband because I heard heard your husband got laid off from his job. And and they would say, my husband? My husband never got laid off from my job. And I would continue doing that over and over again until I said, there's your gratitude list. (laughs) <laughs> That's fine. Oh, it took oh, them a true. while to get it, huh? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah it, it, it took them a while to get it.
1: Well, we um, are doing an aging mastery program, which is a new program from the National Council on the Aging and our Senior Centers, and week one is they have to write a gratitude list. And so they go away, they come back with a list, and one of the Senior Center directors was sharing with me that number one on several persons' lists was being thankful for the thankful list that they were really appreciated you know, the um, opportunity to stop and be thankful and, and have an attitude of gratitude, um, that that was one of the best things that had happened to them in a long time.
0: Now, we hope you are grateful for this show. And if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zernio with us. I'm Ron Aaron. Uh, give me some examples of uh, the gratitude that you think of, Jamie, when you, when, when you think of gratitude.
4: Well, first of all, I mean, you can go to any place. It really goes back to people and relationships for me. Um, I'm always grateful for my mom and and her being there because she was the pivot point for me, either going south or north in my life. And I could have well gone south and not been on this radio show today and, and pretty much been meaningless, but I'm always grateful that she cared enough and hung in there enough and intervened enough and then, of course, now I'm 60 years old, um, I'm so grateful for having a, a, a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. I mean, my Lord, I I it was a curveball from God, as we all know. But I have to tell you, this is, again, a relationship that, that somebody can never take away from me. So I'm grateful for my friends. I'm very grateful for doing this show. I love being connected to you, Ron, and, and Carol, and to the caregivers and the listening audience. Uh, these are things that, that really mean a lot to me and, and bring me out of my my funk when I get into it.
0: The other day, Reagan said to me, Daddy, will you be my best friend? Aww. My little heart melted. And I said, yes, you're my best friend, too. The next day, I, I, I told her, hey, Reagan, you have to stop doing whatever she was doing. She looked at me, and she said, you're no longer my best friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Our kids You're getting out,
1: in yeah. and out so quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're, you know, tight. But
4: didn't that moment, no matter what age we are, yeah. Ron, that moment when right. she said it and looked into your eyes, yes. didn't we feel grateful, and it was timeless, and it didn't matter whether we were 20 or we right. were 90. Yeah. It is that beautiful thing that gratitude takes us back to the moment, it takes us out of the stress of, of tomorrow or the fears that we got from yesterday, and it brings us to the moment
0: we've got to stop you right here. It's a good way to end it. This is a good segment, Carol. I know. I've got a
1: smile on my face. I'm just grateful yeah. for, for, for everything at this point. That's you know, really Listening cool. to,
0: to all of you. You've been listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, our co-host. And we will catch you again next week. You want to hear a podcast of this show, be grateful. Podcasts are available. You can get those from caregiversos.org, www.CaregiverSOS For Carol and Jamie, I'm Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you soon on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.